Hi, I'm Axel Tarry, the author of the not-so-well-known A Light to Start By, and uh, you're listening to Book Podcast, which would actually be a fantastic podcast if it weren't for the last minute. guys tell you about the books that they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. This week's episode is going to be a little different from some of the other things we've done. Uh, as you may already know, we've done uh, 17 interviews with uh, contributors to the Warmed and Bound anthology. And uh, as we had a little break um, from the podcast after doing that, uh, we decided to go back and read the stories that we didn't read for the interviews. And we thought there were a few that deserved, uh, that merited some extra attention. So we're going to kind of do that along with a little bit of wrap up on Warmed and Bound this episode. And joining us for this episode is someone who had a little bit of uh, input into different interviews that we had. He would drop a minute in here or there, but we thought it would be nice to have him kind of join us and do the wrap up with us. This is our correspondent from the Netherlands, Mlaz. Mlaz, say hello. Hello. Okay, so the first thing that we're going to do is we're just going to talk about, we've kind of pulled together a list of all the stories in the book have their, you know, good points and everything like that, but we pulled together a list of stories that we specifically wanted to mention and talk a little bit about that we didn't get to when we were doing the interviews. And so each of us is going to introduce a couple of the stories, and then we're just going to have general discussion about that. And it looks like Livius is going to kick this off. All right. The first story I thought deserved a little bit uh, of extra attention. It was a really standout story from Matt Bell, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right, but the story is called Mantodea, which uh, to our best, uh, the best research we could do on that, we came up with uh, it's another term for a praying mantis or a type of praying mantis. Uh, Matt's story comes off as very, very timely. There's, there's been a recent rash of reality TV shows um, that focus on very odd obsessions, and his protagonist is obsessed with ingesting various items and it's kind of a an hour or two in the life of of this character and uh as he's hanging out in a bar just a fantastic fantastic story well i think the title is rubbish (laughs) because well i just asked you guys before the show i mean what is a man today is it a mantis and no one really knew for sure what it was but i mean a grasshopper is it i mean what's that kind of a title Right. <laughs> I was going to say something nice afterwards, by the way. But <laughs> well, a, I, I have to give you credit. I, it's very, very rare that I laugh out loud at all, and it's something that people give me a hard time about, but I actually have tears rolling down my face right now from trying to control my laughter on this. <laughs> <laughs> right. Do you, Malaz, you said you had something nice to say. Yeah, I was also going to say that uh, at first sight, the plot is not so great. I mean, a bloke meets a bird. But then uh, the language that was written in is really great. And those last three or four lines is what makes a good story really great, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I, my overall impression of the story is that it's just, it's got your, like the skeleton of a, of a very, not typical story, but it's a story we all know. Like, a, you know, a guy in a bar meets a girl and there's this kind of, tension and everything but yeah 
the whole other aspect of of him eating stuff and the way that their interaction goes and everything, I thought made it kind of more uh, special than it would have. He took something typical and he made it uh, his own and he made it, I thought it was really, really interesting. Without spoiling uh, too much of the story, I, what I the part that really got me about that story is how his protagonist projects his own obsession onto somebody else, which is something that I think we all do to a certain extent. I'm very notorious for if there's something I see online that I'd never be interested in, I just assume nobody else would be. Or if I find something interesting, I assume it's interesting to the world. And I thought it was great that even his twisted psyche protagonist kind of did the same thing in that story which was just uh which was really fantastic sometimes it's the little small things that can really make a story great yeah i I agree with you but that's why i really think the title is so bad because uh, once you know what a mentodonia thingy is i mean that takes away half of the excitement for me Hmm. i mean that's what a mentos does right (laughs) yeah yeah that's true I, i guess yeah it is kind of a it kind of telegraphs what's going to happen in the story, if that's what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. but let's be, let's be honest. I had no idea what it was. I had to look it up after the fact. <laughs> so, it did, so it didn't ruin it for me, but that's just because of my poor grasp of the English language, I guess. <laughs> it is a mantis, isn't it? You guys, yeah, we looked it up. <laughs> so now, I can, now I can just show my infinite knowledge again that I kind of knew it was the grasshopper. Yeah, we had to... We had to wait for for someone whose English is their second language to uh, to school us, <laughs> school us on it. At any rate, overall, I think it's a great story. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a good good story, and the language makes it really stellar. Rob, what do you have? Uh, the first story I'm going to introduce is Christopher J. Dwyer's story, Midnight Souls. The basic idea of the story is that it's a couple, and they do um, amputations f- for pay. Uh, the story itself, I think, kind of along the lines of what we were saying about Matt's story, it's kind of a simple concept and everything, but he works this kind of a supernatural aspect into it. And I don't know how much I want to say about it because I don't want to ruin anything, but there's a supernatural, I, I guess is the best way I could describe it, aspect to the story that, that takes something that would otherwise be a decent story and makes it just kind of like unique and it just kind of pops more for me because of that. And again... As usual, Dwyer uses his heavy imagery, and uh, he really pulls on the different senses to to get you to see what he's writing and everything. And as much as we gushed over uh, when October Falls when it was out, I was careful. Like I didn't want to just fall into the rut of talking so nicely about the same authors over and over again. But I really, really like this story, and it was definitely um, a, a great addition. Did Malaz. you notice it says three times October in this story? Uh, I did notice that, yeah. <laughs> I, I noticed it, and I mentioned it to Rob earlier, and I'm just going to go ahead and say, but there, there wasn't. Um, they did, he didn't mention purple at all, so <laughs> we, we did, we did, we did catch that. But I'm, I'm, I'm with Rob. It felt very much the same way about this story as we did about uh, about Dwyer on our previous review. Just fantastic writing, and he has a really. Just a really lyrical way with words that sometimes you kind of get caught up in the sentences outside of the story, just sentence structure and some of the things he says. It's just a, just a, again, a fantastic writer and a really great story. The interesting thing about this, I think in your interview earlier with Christopher, he said he worked about, I don't know, 10 years about when October Falls. And I joined Write Club in 2005 or something. And there was a short story, which was also about uh, amputation. And it featured the guy, Clayton, as well. So that is... I don't know. Hmm. Six years ago, maybe. Oh, very interesting. 
Uh, yeah. There, there, there seems to be like a lot of amputation okay. going on in this anthology now that I think about it. Yes, I'm not sure if this is going to make it into the episode or not, but did anybody else just notice that Christopher Dwyer just popped online while we were talking about him? Oh, that's creepy. <laughs> so. I, I talked about him earlier because uh, I reread re uh, the story and I thought, you know, I, I know this story already. So I asked him, did I read this before? And he said, no, but Clayton was into amputation like six years ago. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's an interesting thought. Wow. Did anybody else notice all the amputation in the book, though? I want to hear someone else acknowledge that there was lots of amputation going on in the anthology. Oh, no, I think you've got a, some kind of weird fetish, Rob. <laughs> that could be it. Yes, I noticed I noticed the amputation, and I also had gone on to read Last Days by um, Brian Evanson in the middle of all this, which was also about amputation. So, yeah, people have been getting hacked to pieces for me for a few weeks now. <laughs> You know, it's also great that um, you mentioned Guinness in the story, which is by far my favorite, my most favorite drink. Oh, Guinness, is that what you said? Yeah. Oh, see, that's too heavy for me. I, I don't know if it's just because I'm like, I, I, like weak or whatever, but I can't. It's too much. It's like eat, it's like eating a meal. I'm just not. A, I'm just not a big fan of beer all around. So, yeah. Take that, Malaz. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, Malaz, I, yeah. oh, me, I am strange because I'm the one who drink beer. All right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I drink really light beers that taste like fruit. All right. So you like Heineken. Yeah. yeah the, the, the last time I saw Rob with a beer in his hand, it had a slice of orange sitting in it. That's true. Well, that was Blue Moon. I don't know how you feel about those Belgians. Yeah, let's not go there. <laughs> Malaz, do you have a story you wanna, that you thought was kind of standout? Yeah, I want to talk about uh, Seed by Gil Towell. Uh, but the thing is, I've used more words already now than the entire story of her holds. So, I mean, it's very hard to talk about it. I mean, I would say it's about lima beans and just go buy Worms and Bounds and find out for yourself. <laughs> yeah, Livius and I were talking about that story too, and it's, uh, it is very short, so it's tough to talk about. But uh, she packed some seriously vivid imagery into a very small small story i could say something else about uh about gil though because um she is shopping her novel around which is called moron and axe which is the same tightly packed story really only it's a novel but that's definitely a name to look out for in the future i will say this of all the 38 stories in warmed and bound um that's the one that from an imagery standpoint, I think will stay with me the longest. And again, not to spoil because it is only a page and a half, I think maybe almost two pages, but um, definitely worth a look. And we're glad we had you talk about it, Malaz, because Rob and I both kind of thought like, we don't want to talk about this story. Not that it wasn't great. We were just a little uncomfortable with it. So. Yeah. yeah it's, it's because it's so short that you, I mean, you really can't say anything about it. Mm -hmm. Right. That's what you can say about it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it, it, the same with any short story, but especially with when it's so short. But yeah, it was just um, very, very vivid. And it, yeah, like Livia said, it's just going to stick with me for a while. It's very, some powerful, powerful thoughts in there. It's very wrong of you to say it will stick with me in when the story is called Seed, of course. <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> Right. My second standout pick of the stories that we hadn't talked about, um, Soccer Moms and Pro Wrestlers by Bradley Sands. 
the really standout part of this story is that I don't want to say it doesn't fit in the anthology because I think it does in kind of its dark scope and it's a little little kind of strange and weird, but it is certainly um, the funniest story in uh, in this uh, anthology and it's very rare and I'm going to kind of tell us a little you know analogy. My friends make fun of me because I don't really care for comedy movies. And it's very rare that something gets me to laugh out loud like Malaz apparently does. But uh, th- this story absolutely did it. And it's, uh, it's narrated by a youngster who's, who's at a soccer game. What at first kind of appear to be his outrageous views of the world. And it's just it's, it's very well written, very funny. And even though it does get considerably darker, it's, again, easily the most amusing story in the anthology and well worth a read. That's true, actually. Um, I, I said I didn't make notes, but I made a little note about every story in it. That funniest story in the book? Question mark. So that were your exact words. Oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> the connection, Livius. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you guys should take over the podcast, and I'll just uh, I'll go find something else to do. I think. Go drink your light beer somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just thought the story was. It, it, it's weird because it's had this twist where you thought it was really like a very light take on some very very dark um, content. And then the, the the twist at the end, I didn't expect, and it, and it made it a little more somber and everything. But overall, yeah, just a very amusing story. We should mention at this point that um, Soccer Moms and Pro Wrestler, I'm sorry, and I call it Soccer Moms and Pro Wrestler Dads, is the first um, chapter in the forthcoming novel, TV Snorted My Brain. And I am fairly, fairly certain just from reading that little chapter that we'll be uh, probably talking a lot more in depth about uh, Bradley Sands' novel when it comes out. I, I do want to say one thing, though, and I mean, this is not Bradley's fault, but why do Americans insist in calling sport where a bunch of people kick balls with the food soccer? That's just horrible. <laughs> I mean, you lot don't get football, so don't play it and don't pretend it's another game at all. I mean, no, I know I've 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 had that same thought that the game football, um, you know, they actually hit that ball with their foot, uh, you know, 10 times throughout the game, perhaps. And the rest, it's being thrown around or, you know, dropped somewhere. So, yeah, uh, I believe John Cleese said, all right, there is only one person allowed to kick the ball every now and then in American mm-hmm. football. So why call that football? I mean, that should be called soccer and, and football should be called football. Right? Does anybody know the etymology of soccer, where the where the word came from? No, <laughs> that's a lame story. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's there's nothing good there. We should just move on. <laughs> yeah, right, move on. <laughs> I guess <laughs> moral of the story is that Americans don't know shit about soccer. Is that what you're saying? Or, I'm sorry, don't know shit about football. No, no the moral is Americans don't know anything. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right, I'll take it. Am I, am I still allowed to say something about uh, the soccer mom story? Yeah, yeah. Because, all right. I said, you lot don't get football, but I don't understand pro wrestling. <laughs> What's that all about? You know, I spent a lot of years defending pro wrestling when I was a child to people, but now as an adult, it seems kind of like a, <clears throat> a silly exercise. <laughs> so. Yeah. I, I grew up on pro wrestling. I mean, I literally spent years, and at one point, I, mean, I thought back, and I think I probably spent about seven or eight hours a week watching pro wrestling on on television. So, formed you. I don't know. I, I watched it as a child, but I mean, really, my opinion on it for years and years has just been it's some sort of like really bad hybrid of you know actual wrestling and theater and bad theater, and really, it's just a bunch of like it's an excuse for a bunch of 
idiots to posture and you know look cool and take people's money is how I feel about it. It's in the same way. I mean, stories also a bit about obesity, and I mean, I weigh about 140 pounds, and so I don't understand obesity at all, and that's why I don't understand American. <laughs> well, I'm well versed with obesity. <laughs> I'm a little bit bigger. <laughs> all right. Well, explain it to me, Rob. Oh, it's just uh, it's easy to be uh, you know lazy and not do things and well, eat I'm, poorly. I'm, re- I'm really, really lazy, but I mean, I'm probably too lazy to eat. Yeah, see, when you <laughs> you have to spend your formative years just eating nothing but fast food like Taco Bell, like for three meals a day, and then just not doing anything, sitting around playing, you know, uh, card games and stuff. And after a while, you get you get big like me. Can you believe we don't even have Taco Bell in, in the Netherlands? That's I, just crazy. That's <laughs> insane. I do. I know. <laughs> We've There's, got the McDonald's and the Burger King and the KFC and all that kind of rubbish, but no Taco Bell. And when I was in school, I studied communication sciences. There were a couple of Americans with me uh, in my class, and they said, all right, you've got to bring us to a Taco Bell now. And I said, what? <laughs> it doesn't exist here. Well, there's got to be like a, an American military base or somewhere near there where they have Taco Bell. No. I don't know. I don't think there's one in the Netherlands, no. Mm. I think when you get into the you know the rest of the world, you just find that fast food isn't necessarily as a staple in the diet like it can be um, here in the United States. Yeah, I guess you're right. Uh, we just default toward. And here, I mean, I could go on a bigger rant about it. Like, uh, there's a documentary called Food Inc. where it goes into kind of like the socioeconomic reasons why people eat so much fast food. Like, uh, uh, typically, when you're poor, it's cheaper to buy fast food than it is to buy fresh produce and, and meats and stuff like that. So it's it's almost a financial decision, and then kids get into this habit of always eating fast food, and that's what they know, and that's how they grow up and everything. So, I mean, there's a lot of legitimate studies and stuff. It's not right, but that's kind of that's kind of the trap that a lot of families and stuff fall into when people get used to that at an early age. All right. Thank you, Professor Rob. <laughs> Did I just bore everybody? Is anybody awake still? Oh, all right. Uh, let's well, see. Rob. <laughs> you asked. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. <laughs> I, was, I was holding back, but we kept pressing the issue, so I had to get But Food Inc. is a very, very good documentary if you're into the idea of, of uh, what happens with food in America and stuff. Yeah, like I care for America. Well, yeah, I know. Um, you will once you get a Taco Bell. It'll change your life. Be all about you'll be all about the red, white, and blue while you're eating Mexican food out of a Taco Bell. I will probably get a silly hat as well. <laughs> I might I, have to find a place to mail a silly hat to you. I, um, I don't have an address. <laughs> I would just like to say, for the record, that the majority of Americans do not wear kangles. That that's uh, that that if Rob is uh, putting that out around the rest of the world, and that's what the folks in the Netherlands and in Australia and France think. That's a uh, yeah, it's it's just Rob. But don't start by talking silly hats with French. I mean, they've got the albino hats or something, whatever you call it. I am not familiar with that. Mm. Well, I sent you a picture. Axel's got one on. I was going to say, we have to call in Axel for this. <laughs> All uh, right, next story, Rob. Yeah, I know. We're just going to keep digressing and digressing. The next story that I want to talk about is Love by J.R. Harlan. The reason I want to talk about this story is, again, it's a very short story, so there's not a lot you can say about it without kind of spoiling the story, and I don't want to do that. But 
it's it's the basic idea of of a relationship and infidelity. But the thing that I liked about it was the way that the story was structured, where um, certain lines in a paragraph would end in a way where each like the three last words were each on their own line. So it just caused this um this kind of like separation and it gave more weight, I guess, or significance to the words themselves and it just changed the whole pacing of how you read it. And so I thought that was a really cool way to add a kind of a different dimension to a short story. And then that last in the last line there's a bit of a twist that I thought was it was unexpected and it was really, really I think probably the best way you could end a story like that. So just the way that the story was structured, I thought was really fantastic and unique. Did you think that as well, Livius? You know what? I really liked it. Um, and I liked it. It's a little bit I'll talk about later about the book as a whole, but I'm going to say it now. It was a very, very real, I mean, you talk about love stories and, and when someone says, you know, they're going to read a love story or a romance novel or whatever, everyone gets that Fabio on the cover, Harlequin, damsel in distress feel. And one of the things that Harlan did here is I think he took a story that's about love and made it very, very real. And something that I think a lot of people could, um, could really wrap their minds around about the reality of feelings between people versus that, that flip side that, um, you know, match made in heaven, happily ever after type feel that when we think of love stories, that's kind of what comes to mind. And I think that Harlan did a, a good job of showing the other end of that. Oh, yeah, I know. I was trying to get support because I'm an odd fellow, but I thought it was really funny. But I, I'm probably not clever enough to understand the, the breaks that, that Harlan used because I found it really annoying, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, all right, why don't you go poetry if you want to have odd line break? That's fair, but um, I don't know. There's something to be said for just... Um being able to control the pace that the reader is reading certain words at, I think. I yeah, think, well, the, the way you said it, like, all right, um, it, it gets more weight in this way. I, I kind of agree with you, but while I was reading it, I didn't read it like that. I thought it was just annoying, and now you've pointed out to me, and I think, well, yeah, he's got a point, but I still think it's annoying. It's the equivalent of, and I've seen this done in stories where somebody does exactly what he did, but instead inserts a period after every word, kind of giving it a really strong emphasis, you know, on, on what he's saying versus, you know, just flowing through with, with his statements that he made in there. And so, I mean, I, I liked it well enough. I think it delivered its, I think it, I think it, for me, it did what I believe he meant to do. And then overall, like I said, I just thought it was a really good spin on, on the, the traditional love story. But the, the thing is, uh, if you wouldn't have had the odd line breaks, I think the story would not have been weaker because I think it's a great story. And it feels like the odd line breaks are some of a, somewhat of a gimmick. I see what and, you're saying. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's valid. And I think that you're right. I think it does have kind of a poetic feel to it, the way that the, the lines are broken out like that. But, And I guess maybe it'll just come down to whether you, you know, whether it's thing you like or don't like, but I agree. If it were just laid out like a normal story, I don't think that would lose anything. Hey, I'm going to out myself as a 16 year old girl here, but Ellen Hopkins made an entire career off writing in that type of structure and style. If you guys are familiar with the stuff she's done. No, (laughs) I was hoping for a really long silence. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
I couldn't take it anymore. (laughs) I'm I'm sure that that there's a 16-year-old girl out there that's going to be listening to us and be like, exactly, that's what I thought too. It's just like Ellen Hopkins. When you said, I'm going to be a 16-year-old girl, I was expecting like uh, a higher-pitched voice and then you go, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah." (laughs) (laughs) What the hell? That's not a 16-year-old girl. That's the kind he hangs out with, I guess. That's right. Yeah. All right. Anybody else have anything they want to say on Love by J.R. Harlan? Oh, no? just um, I might be wrong about this. It's Olivia's. Uh, J.R. Harlan, we know him from Nefarious ne- Muse. Nefarious Muse, right. Okay. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to make sure we gave you that little shout out. That's all I got. You want to tell us about your other uh, story that you were going to introduce? Obviously, I want to include uh, a European in this podcast. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about Bruised Flesh um, by Craig Warwork. And, well, you told me not to spoil too much, so really quickly, the plot is about a father who doesn't have money, but he has a son and a video camera, so he makes him fall on his bicycle, and he tapes it, and then he sends it off to America's Funniest Home Video or something. And, well, I thought it's brilliant, uh, because I think it's very funny. But also, um, I workshopped uh, this story with Greg, so... Um, I told him how to make it better, and I think uh, it worked. Very cool. Yeah, I, um, <laughs> I've i often wondered when I see those shows, like who walks around with a video camera all the time to just capture all of these moments. Um, and, uh, yeah, maybe maybe there's some truth to what Wallwork had to say in this story. Maybe some of these people are doing this stuff just for, for sending it in in hopes of, uh, of hitting the big time on uh, America's Funniest Home Videos. I, I think it's funny that the father is very clever because uh, – after a few tricks, he says, all right, uh, we have to uh, dye your hair now because otherwise the producers will <laughs> see that this is the same boy getting knocked, knocked out of buildings and everything all the time off bicycles. Yeah. Yeah. It was a clever story. I thought it was a pretty unique um, idea and everything, and it, it, I, I liked it a lot. I don't really have a lot of in-depth an- analysis, but, yeah, I thought it was, a, it was definitely a good story, one of the ones I like more. Also, Craig is writing some kind of a novel built up out of stories called Dogma. And I'm pretty sure this is actually part of that um, of that book as well. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say this, by the way. But. <laughs> we'll find out when he listens to this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I, I don't really care. I mean, Craig is really kind of a sissy boy. So, I mean, <laughs> no, one, no one cares what he thinks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, you know how? Do you know how much time Rob and I spend going through our notes, making sure we don't offend anybody? Like that's. <laughs> I, I thought it was my job to offend basically everyone. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I was excited to have you on was because it was just our like, our free pass to get everybody just all riled up, and it's not actually our fault. Okay, I mean, and and I could just pretend that I am not entirely sure what I'm saying because it's not my native language. Exactly, There's, it's blameless. <laughs> Are we ready to move into book structure? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go on. I don't know anything about book structure, so I just shut up for uh, for a minute and don't offend anyone. Oh, that's okay. We don't know anything about book structure either. We make it up as we go along. Yeah, we don't even know anything about books. Livius can't read. Mm-hmm. Rob reads me the books over the <laughs> phone, so that that's how I get my stories. Okay, so that's six of the stories that uh, the three of us cobbled together of the 21 or so that we didn't um, talk about previously that are, you know, we kind of felt they're standout stories and worth another look. Certainly there are a ton 
a ton of really great stories in this book. Um, but those are some of the ones that I thought we thought merited some some extra look sees. So when you get your copy, go ahead and flip open to those and read them. Uh, but that being said, Rob and I wound up reading this anthology in a really weird way. As we had interviews planned and scheduled, we would flip open and read that author's work, you know, a day or two prior to interviewing them and kind of make some notes and, and work on, you know, the questions we wanted to ask and stuff. So we really read it completely out of whack. Um, as a matter of fact, our first interview was the last story in the book. So if that tells you how we, how we got started, we started at the end and then kind of picked and poked our way through the rest of the book. So in going through and rereading them again and then, you know, being forced to skip over a chapter or, you know, the stories that we already read. Um, one of the things I found, and, and it's something I think we both missed, is just what a great job the editor, Pela Villa, did in grouping the stories together to kind of make them flow in a really rhythmic way. You know, there's a, there's a section that's basic kind of crime noir. There's a section that's just the strange and bizarre. And then getting towards the end of the book, you have just these very dark love stories that uh, that I mentioned a little bit earlier, just very realistic, dark love stories. And it just it flowed really, really well. I kind of wish I would have read it start to finish because as I'm flipping through and going, OK, this is so and so story that I already read. And I'm, you know, in my head thinking about the content of it, I realized as I moved on to the next one, what a great flow it made for Yes, and that's one of the things that really stuck out for me when we were interviewing Pela about the book and everything was we asked her very briefly about how she decided what stories went where. And she mentioned how, you know, a couple of stories seemed to fit really well next to each other. And then they started just kind of piling on and piling on. And that led to kind of the flow of the book. And in reading it or just looking at the table of contents and remembering the different stories, I feel that that's pretty much, it seems that's exactly what happened was just like you have two stories that seem like they're almost meant to be right next to each other. And then you just kind of work them together and stuff like that. But she did, she did do a very good job of cobbling together a book in a way that it made sense, especially with all the different types of stories like Livius mentioned already. I touched on it a little bit earlier. So I'm going to give a shout out to the particular section that, um, that that felt the best group together and had a really good flow. And that was the, what I'll call the dark love story section. And that consisted of um, Doc O'Donnell, Pela herself, Bob Pastorella, Richard Thomas, J.R. Harlan, and Tim Beverstock. Uh, all of them great love stories from, from the flip side is, is kind of how I thought of them in comparison to what I normally think of as a love story. So a, a great job to all those guys for really putting a realistic feel together on, on a, you know, on what traditionally is a little more, I don't know what the word is. A little more mushy stuff, I guess. <laughs> I got to say overall, and I know we're going to talk about um, some of our actual personal favorite stories from the book. I was really digging kind of that bizarre fiction and stuff like that. Just kind of the weird out there stuff. And maybe it's just because I don't read a lot of it, but I was really getting into just like uh, the, the books that are the, excuse me. I was really getting into some of the stories that take place earlier in the book that are just like a little bit out there, like the soccer bombs and pro wrestler dads and stuff like that. Um, I think that's, if you, if I had to choose a group that I liked the most, it was just those kind of bizarre, weird stories that I liked the most. Malaz, any thoughts on story grouping or anything that you particularly liked or didn't like? Um, well, I, I think that, uh, the opening was really stellar. Uh, I think Axel Diary's story doesn't really fit in anywhere <laughs> because, well, it's so outlandish really. So it's it's a but it's a great story and it's a great opener as well, and well I just read the stories uh, like you I just one of the first stories I read was well the opener and then I thought all right I want to read um, Levenger first and uh, Stephen Graham Jones so 
I didn't really look for any structure. It, I mean, that's the way I read collections, really. I mean, there's no structure for me. I'm, I'm sure Bella did, did a really good job trying to get a structure in it, but I didn't catch it. Now, speaking of reading anthologies, and it's something Rob and I have talked about. Yeah, I've read several numerous anthologies, and I have to say that this one really probably had, and maybe it's just overall numbers, I, I don't know, but there were so many fantastic stories in this. And usually when I read an anthology, it's it's hit or miss. You know, I read uh, Stephen King's latest anthology a couple of months ago, and you know, one really great story, one kind of mediocre story, and then two that I really didn't care for. And I find with collections and anthologies that that's usually what I wind up with is probably you know a 25% like ratio. And I didn't really mark down a particular rating for each story, but I have to say there's, you know, this is, this is 75 to 80% four and five star stories throughout. The interesting thing is of course that most of these uh, authors are part of a website, you know, of an online community. I mean, they're basically amateurs, most of them. And it's really incredible that there's so many great stories in it. I mean, I haven't read two, I think, and the rest, most of them are, are all really great stories mm-hmm. and incredible. I agree. The, the example of what I read most recently that was a different collection that comes to mind is I was reading there's Akashic Books has the different noir series, and I was reading the uh, San Francisco Noir 1 and 2, um, and in them I think Will Christopher Bear's got a, a story in one, and Craig Clevenger's got a story in one like that. But there's just, you know, it's supposed to be a bunch of noir stories from the San, uh, authors in the San Francisco area. And, man, half of them wouldn't even qualify as noir, and some of them were just, I don't know, just terrible. And it's, um, like Livia said, it's in an anthology, it's just very hit or miss, and usually it's more miss than hit. But this one, I did find myself really enjoying most, if not all of the stories at some, you know, different level, but yeah. Um, yeah, definitely stands out. And Melaz makes a good point. There are a lot of people who are at the very beginning or, you know, at one of the beginning stages of their career. So to see such good qualities is, is just, it's nice. And okay. We've, uh, so during the series of interviews, we've been called out a lot on asking people to pick favorites and everything else. So we're going to show you how easy this can actually be. <laughs> um, we've all, we've each gone through and picked our, uh, our favorite three stories. So let's preface this by saying this was not, at least on my part, um, this is not to say they're the best stories. It's not that they're the best written or the most engaging or whatever, but just for whatever reason on this particular day, being asked to pick three stories, uh, this is what uh, what we came up with. And I think we're going to let Molaz go first on this. Yeah, it's very easy. Death Juggler uh, by Tayari, The Wordless Clocks by Gowan, and Click Click by Ross. Easy. I think that's the, is that the first three stories in the book. Did you, <laughs> did you, did you read past the first three? <laughs> is it the first three, really? Yeah, it's the first, uh, third, and the second, I guess. Uh, that sounds really lame. <laughs> oh, it is. It is one, one. Yeah. Like two and three. You caught me there. <laughs> Rob, you want to? I've got a very short attention span, so I just, you know, first three, that's all right. If I followed uh, suit, then I would say, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Actually, I do, uh, on my list is the fourth story, which is... Uh, um, Manto Dea by Matt Bell and then I also liked The Killer by Brian Evanson and Midnight Souls by Christopher Dwyer those are my top three for right now 
All right, and then and then I was gonna try really really hard not to cop out. So I'm, while I'm doing this, I'm gonna pick between two stories while I talk a little bit about the first two because I kept coming up with four and couldn't figure out a way. But I forced myself to three. So here it is: soccer moms and pro wrestler dads. We talked about it a little, little earlier, and for various reasons, like I said, a story that can actually get me to laugh out loud is absolutely gold with me. So Bradley Sands, thank you very much for that. Um, Chance the Dick by T- Paul Tremblay, and what I really really liked about this story was. He took very, very classic noir thinking, and, and most people, when you, when you say noir, they go right back to the, the detective with his feet on the desk and the hat pulled down over his head. But then he threw in this very bizarro twist, which was just absolutely fantastic. And Richard Thomas. No! Yeah, Richard, <laughs> Richard Thomas's story is, and I'm not going to say what that was really, there was really, there was a tie. There were two of them. And like I said, I was going to make up my mind in that 30 seconds while I was stalling by talking about what the other stories are about. But um, Thomas uh, did a really, really great job on, on, a, on a love story with a twist. And I know that the other two kind of fell into that bizarro category. But as much as I talked about it, that grouping of love stories was really my, my favorite part overall in this, even though I mentioned two stories that would fall more from the, uh, the bizarro category of fiction. So there you have it. That's exactly how easy it is to just list a couple of stories that you like the best at a particular moment. I'm interested what the fourth story was really. <laughs> yeah, that is the question. It's it's okay to pick some favorites. And like I said, does that take away anything from what I thought? I could sit here and talk about 20 of these stories and tell you what I really, really liked about them. But at any given day, at any given moment, if asked, you know, and, and that could change. If you ask me again in three days what my favorite stories were and I look through the table of contents, based on my mood or whatever else is going on, that might change a little bit. But if I had to call out three favorites right now, that's that's the three. And the mystery fourth one as well. So I'm not saying what it is. So I'm keeping it to three, but there is a mystery fourth one as well. There you well go. done, sir. <laughs> uh, hey, uh, do you guys want to just go one by one and give a, a rating out of five stars for what we think about the book? Yep, let's do it. Let's let our guest Malaz go first. He's going to give it two stars, and then we're going to have to defend our... Uh, our ratings. I was going to give it five stars, but then I saw Rich. It's almost as part of it, so I'm going to give it four stars. <laughs> wow, he rates uh, a demotion of a full star, huh? Well, you don't really know Rich Thomas as well as I do. <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It, I, I, really, I mean, I'm, I'm not objective here because I know so many uh, authors who are in this anthology personally, and. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I think it's five stars. Uh, as I said, lots of them are at the beginning of their career, and they have written so many great stories. So this is no, it, it's no doubt about it. It's really five stars. Rob, five stars as well. And um, it's difficult with an anthology, but I, I, I'm not going to be the asshole that says this is a five star anthology, having never read anthologies before. I've read or tried to read a bunch of anthologies, and. I, I will say that this is easy, easily the farthest I've ever gotten into an anthology, and yeah, um, definitely a five stars. There's just there's really no way you can lose with this, and I know that sounds very much like I'm doing a commercial, but um, it's just it's the truth. It's a great, great collection of stories. Yeah, and I, I'm gonna chime in with the same with the same five stars. It's like I said, easily eighty percent of these stories are four or five star stories, and that has to dwarf other anthologies by. 30 40 percent easily like i said the best i probably hit was an anthology that was you know 50 percent rock solid if that and this this goes so far beyond that and to be honest with you i mean it's 
a lot of times when you read an anthology, the the style is the same or, or the story elements are exactly the same. So, for example, and not to belittle any of these, but if you read an anthology and it's about vampires, every story is about vampires. And typically they're kind of written in the same style and stuff. And not that there's anything wrong with that. This anthology was collected together around probably the word dark. You know, if you had if you had to take it out of velvet out of velvet territory, this is a dark anthology and that's what ties them all together. And what you get are, you know, 38 different views and 38 very unique stories, all, all surrounding that, that particular topic. And I said 80% of them just knock it right out of the park. That's right. <laughs> oh, there you go. Thank, thank you, Malaz, for validating that for me. I appreciate it. <laughs> five stars all around. That is our first five-star book on Booked. Oh, wow, you're right. Yeah, and I'm definitely going, if, going to give it four stars. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to edit go, you. I'm going to edit Malaz out of this episode. <laughs> oh. If you go and look at Goodreads, you'll see a couple of five star books because we can't do four and a half. And I know we've done two or three four and a half star books that just weren't quite at five, even though they were fantastic all in their own standing. But I think this is this is definitely the first one that on our review is going to go down as a five star book. Okay, we're going to end this episode talking a little bit uh, with Malaz about um, stuff he's got going on. But, but before we go there, I thought it'd be nice to just talk about we did 17 interviews for this uh, this anthology. And there's definitely some themes that developed throughout. But um, there was also just some really, really fascinating moments. So I thought it'd be nice to just kind of rattle off a few of the things that we liked most about these interviews. And I want to kick it off with a very obvious thought, and that is paranormal activity. Um, which actually originated outside of the interviews is when we interviewed Christopher J. Dwyer for When October Falls. He mentioned uh, this this thing that happened at the AWP where they watched Paranormal Activity, and Richard Thomas was a sissy, I believe. <laughs> so once we had all the other four people on the show, on the show, we couldn't help bringing up Paranormal Activity over and over again, and it actually like grew to the point where we talked to the so we talked to Axel about it, we talked to Richard about it. And who else was there? Uh, Nick Corpin. Nick Corpin and Chris Dwyer, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. The four of them. Yeah. And and so we got their <laughs> we got their take on it. But then like other people we interviewed had heard about it and stuff and had their input onto paranormal activity. And so it just blossomed into this whole like it was almost an element of you know maybe half the interviews we were talking about paranormal activity and whether it was scary or not. So that was just one of those funny things that uh, <laughs> I just like the fact that we just ballooned into this giant conversation about paranormal activity i didn't expect at all malaz what are your thoughts on paranormal activity so we can put this thing to rest once and for (laughs) all (laughs) i haven't seen it but i'm going to pretend that i did and i call richard thomas a sissy as well (laughs) well there you go that seems to be the consensus view on paranormal activity and richard thomas unfortunately so yeah, we have like a United Nations of uh, of co- condemnation for Richard Thomas now. We've got Axel in France and Malaz over there in the Netherlands. And yeah, I don't know. I thought it was a decent movie. It didn't keep me up at night or anything. But yeah, I did. I did like those moments, and I, I think it was great that uh, that we actually got to have all the parties involved at some point uh, <laughs> give their their opinion on it. It, it was kind of like watching one of those. Uh, like a Quentin Tarantino kind of movie where you got to see the view from, you know, these different scenes as everybody else sees the exact same thing that happened. So that was, that was pretty terrific. 
Um, well, we got Malaz on, Malaz Minutes. We had several Malaz Minutes on that were pretty fantastic, um, I thought, and very engaging to some of the authors. He was on the Amanda Gowan episode, uh, the Axel Tayari episode. Edward, and, Edward uh, J. And Rathke. Edward J. Rathke. So thank you, Malaz, for your contributions, not just to today's show, but uh, to those particular interviews as well. Yeah, it's good of you to have me. Um, from a content standpoint, when we take out kind of the silly stuff, because we can go on and talk about zombies and llamas and all kinds of other fun things that the, that came up. I will say this. Thank you to Stephen Graham Jones for siding with me on the sword versus sledgehammer <laughs> debate. As a, as a man who now teaches a class on zombies, I think we'll have to call him the authority on that. And then that'll end the debate between Rob and myself as well. Oh, that's convenient for you. Hey, hey, who else teaches a class on zombies that could give us a definitive answer on that? So uh, it was another good moment, but um, I lost my train of thought of what I was thinking before that. Rob, what do you have? (laughs) I had no idea what to expect when talking to Craig Lovinger, and the entire interview was just so fascinating. And um, I don't know, like, I don't don't know what it is, but him saying that he collects antique mugshots just just really stuck with me, and I just can't... That was probably one of my favorite moments, was just this kind of out of the blue. It's just this kind of really cool thing, and... uh, I, I like that a lot for some reason. I, and it was great talking to Clevenger and he's a hero of mine and everything, but <laughs> that mugshot thing is for some reason what resonates with me. The other oh. day, Craig said that he's got a few new pictures of mugshot. He said it on Facebook or something. Oh, yeah. He gave a list of the, the ones he picked up, I think. <laughs> golf, golf hustler mugshot. <laughs> <laughs> golf hustler. And I mean, yeah, we we got not only did did we get a lot of good insight into, you know, people's involvement with the velvet and with this particular story. But I mean, we got a lot of great, uh, a lot of great tips in there for for um, for writers as well. And one of my favorites was um, J. David Osborne talked about writing drunk and then editing sober, which I thought was absolutely brilliant and something I may have to take a shot at doing because I am a piss poor writer. But maybe if I write drunk and then relook at it sober, that might uh, that might work for me. (laughs) Well, obviously, it was nice to hear that uh, Craig Levenger agreed with me on the all right crusade that I'm uh, <laughs> undertaking for the last couple of years. Yep. See, um, see that validation, Rob. See, he got validated just like I did. You're the only one that has no validation in these interviews. The funny story is now um, the other day he sent out uh, a, a new uh, story uh, Clevenger did, which is called Vapor Trail. And. Um, he asked someone to comment on it, so I read it, and it said, why do you use any more as one word? <laughs> and um, he said something like, uh, all right, this is written in Southern American English uh, dialect, so they are acceptable, but you're right, they're not corrected. Uh, oh, they're not correct, and I corrected them in the manuscript now, so <laughs> invalidated twice now. Very nice. That's that's got to that's got to be like a new high. Like Rob and I have had like kind of new highs for the booked episodes, you know, since we've started doing them. But I could see where somebody who's uh, who's critiquing writing that could be a very good validation for someone to have. Congratulations. We yeah. may we may have to name Laz our official word cop. He might be worse than you. Yeah. So so. Yeah. Uh, I think better better is the word, not worse. <laughs> um, I want to talk a little about editing. Okay, so we had Brian Evanson on, Pelavia, we had Nick Corpin, Chris Deal, and all of them talked a little bit about the editing jobs that they've done and stuff that they've done with editing in the past. And it was just really interesting to, to get a perspective on editing, which being primarily a reader, we don't really see that world very much. And um, 
just to hear the different things that people were saying about editing, I thought was a really, really great insight. And, uh, you know, it, we could have talked about the stories the whole time or the anthology the whole time, but it was just nice to see these other aspects of people and, and the way that editing informs how you write or writing informs how you edit and stuff. I thought that was one of my greatest um, learning experiences, I think, from these, from these interviews. All right. And kind of rounding this out, obviously a very special thank you to Pela Via for helping us put this all together. Again, a huge thank you to Pela and the 16 other authors that were able to indulge us. You know, God, we put together, I mean, just what we put out was probably, you know, 16 hours of audio after all the other stuff. But everybody was absolutely terrific um, that, that participated in this. So thank you again very much to all of you for, uh, for helping book be part of the release of Warmed and Bound. You're welcome. Yes, and a big thanks to Malaz for uh, being what I like to call our our third of two, or or the Matt Damon of of booked. That's right. Speaking of Malaz, Malaz, this has been driving me nuts for like two months now. Tell us about Jimmy Viper. Um, well, Jimmy Viper is well my leg- legacy. Uh, it is a story based on a character from an English band. Uh, they are called the Setopex, and you don't know them. But their arch nemesis is Jimmy Fiber, so uh, I, I know the guys uh, from the band. So I said, "All right, I'm going to use this character." And um, the story, well, the plot of the story is really thin. Jimmy Fiber borrows money from uh, from a crime lord called uh, called Mr. Up to No Good, and at one particular moment, Mr. Up to No Good wants his money back, and Jimmy can't pay him back, of course. So he says, "All right, uh, I'm going to kill you now. Are you going to pull some jobs for me?" And, uh, well, he decides on that he wants to live a bit more. So um, it's probably going to be a series. And the, and, and the first story is called uh, Jimmy Viper and the Werewoman. And his first job is to uh, obtain the Werewoman's honeypot and bring it back to Mr. Up to No Good. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think am I, am I, if I'm not wrong, you've been posting little um, notes and quotes and stuff on Facebook from Jimmy Viper. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. Is that just kind of just a fun little thing you do, or is it like a teaser about the stories themselves? Oh, I don't know. I, I just talked about it with someone, and he said, what if you post one sentence per day for a week and see if people like it? And I said, well, all right. And uh, yeah, I post some of the of the lines that I've written, and I think are, are well, somewhat funny. I um, I think it's a nice way to get people interested. I started reading those, and I definitely wanted to see more of, of Jimmy Viper. Yeah, the thing that probably stands out from the story is that I'm uh, kind of developing a personal slang of, of the city because uh, the stories take place in a, in a fictional British town called Curzon Town. And, well, everybody uh, smokes their uh, red puff and tobacco and everyone speaks funny. So besides really writing a story, I also have to come up with my own slang, which is part of the fun. Sounds like a pretty cool place. Hey, back to your quotes that you've been posting. Do you think that might be why you were kicked off of Twitter? <laughs> well, yeah. That's, I don't know. I, I always get kicked out of electronic environments. I mean, last year I got lost on, on Ride Club. Still no one really knows how that happened. And now I got de-Twittered as well. And I don't know. I, I don't think any of the of the lines were offensive, really. No. I'm thinking maybe is it Richard Thomas also involved in both of those, and maybe he's the one pulling the trigger on you? Yeah, retribution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Melaz is thinking about it now. You know what? You're right. <laughs> now that you mention it, <laughs> I'm going to fly to Chicago right now, and I'm going to kill Richard Thomas. 
Be careful, this episode may not be up for long. It may mysteriously disappear off our website. <laughs> yeah. I, I so, wouldn't be surprised if, if I listened back to, to these interviews like uh, in a year from now and all the last minutes have gone. <laughs> I'm too lazy to do that. You're, you're, you're safe. I don't, I don't think you're the cause of my disappearances on the internet. Um, where are you at with Jimmy Viper and what part of the uh, progress is that? When, when will we be able to see it? Well, I, I don't know, to be honest. Uh, I've got a very short attention span, so I was planning to have the first real good draft finished at the end of August, but that's not going to happen. So uh, I plan now to have the first draft done by the end of September, which I'm not going to manage either. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I write real slowly and I, and I edit constantly. So, yeah, it's, it's a very slow process, but, I mean, it's going to be real good good when it's done so speaking of editing um earlier today we we share a google document is how rob and i do our notes and this is only the second time we've had a third person looking at them so malaz is also looking at our notes (laughs) he was editing my typing as i was doing it he was going back and correcting misspellings and typographical errors and stuff too so that was a was kind of interesting to see somebody who again um writes in a language other than their own correcting me on my crap so thanks malaz Engaging with an eye. Well, all right. In my defense, never mind. I'm not even. (laughs) Go on. Bring on your defense. I had started typing intriguing and I backspaced and decided to write engaging with an (laughs) eye. So there you go. That doesn't really make it better. Intriguing (laughs) is a way better word than engaging. And this is why I review books and not write them, just in case anybody was wondering. All right. So, you know what? Let's let's talk about this for a little. Tell us about writing, um, about writing Jimmy Viper in English. And we had this conversation with Axel about, you know, about Death Juggler and, and just all of his writing. But how is that different than, than writing in your own native language? To be honest, I wouldn't know because I've never really written anything in Dutch. So I, I really don't know. I mean, yeah, Dutch is such a silly language, really. I mean, there's maybe 20 million people speaking it. So if you really want to create this legacy, I mean, the one thing, the one language you don't want to write in is Dutch, obviously. <laughs> That's just so weird. I mean, I, I speak a second language and I, and I don't write it at all. And I speak it at a very passable level. Um, but I can't even imagine writing in something other than my native language. Like it just like the thought never occurs to me. And I'm sure it doesn't occur to many, many people. So I, I think we have something somewhat unique in you and Axel choosing to use English versus your, your native languages, which I just find absolutely fascinating. Yeah, well, I, th- I think, I mean, Axel was even even more incredible than I am because there is no one in the entire country that's called France where anyone speaks English and he does so that's really amazing I mean <laughs> everyone in the Netherlands claims to speak English and that's not entirely true either but yeah I mean we grow up with English um, I think you got your first English class when you're about I don't know 10 or 12 years old in the Netherlands it's still very very impressive but he does make a good point that I guess if if 20 million people speak Dutch versus what the billions that probably um, can at least read in English, if you want to have a big audience, you want to go with the audience that you want to go with the language that has that reach, I guess that makes a lot of sense. Well, it, it doesn't really make any sense anymore because um, I'm creating my own slang and <laughs> I'm workshopping <laughs> this and, and sometimes someone reads it and so all right, what the hell does this mean? I mean, all right, English is my native language, and you write 
this in my native language and I don't understand it. Explain that's it to a, me. That's great. Molaz has created a third language just to write it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, so. uh, exactly, exactly. Uh, my, my explanation doesn't make any sense why I write in English, to be honest. I don't know if you've ever read a, a Clockwork Orange, but that actually um, kind of had the same feel where it had its own slang and came with a glossary that you could flip back to to look for definitions of slang words. I think in the first edition there wasn't such a glossary at all. Oh, that could be. I don't know. I read, I'm sure, a much, much later edition. A yeah, great book, but I thought that was interesting, the, the whole slang thing. Yeah. I also read uh, Train Spotting by Welsh, and that's written in Scottish, really. Mm. And there wasn't a glossary either, and it's really like written. Some parts are written in phonetic Scottish accent. It's very hard to read. <laughs> well, I haven't gotten there yet, but <laughs> I consider myself warned. Yeah, you shouldn't read it. It's too <laughs> I mean, you're a simple American. Don't start it. Yeah, and I'm overweight, so. Yeah, it's... but I don't don't think that interferes with your reading. <laughs> really. Obviously not. I have a very successful book review podcast. All right. Moaz, anything else you want to say before we go ahead and sign off here? Um, yeah, I want to say one thing. Um, uh, you guys have talked about uh, Thunderdome before, and Thunderdome is now running a series uh, of, I think it's 10 wanton-bound authors who publish a short story that uh, some authors have related it to their wanton-bound stories and some don't. But that's, uh, that's a, cool, uh, it's a cool series to look out for. And where can people uh, find you online? I know you've got, uh, I think, like a blog that you update regularly, right? Uh, yeah, there is the official, unofficial website of Les Corbier, which is www.red-puffin-tobacco.blogspot.com. And I'm also back on Twitter because I disappeared, and now I'm back, and that's at Jimmy, uh, Jimmy's Fiber Gang. So all right. that's all where you can reach me. Malaz, thanks for taking the time to come on with us live here on Booked for the first time. We really appreciate having you on. We definitely look forward to more Malaz Minutes, as do many of our listeners. All right. Thanks for having you guys, and thanks very much for what you've done uh, for most of my friends. All right. Again, a big thank you to our correspondent from the Netherlands, Malaz Corbier, who has defied time and space and managed to be here on our podcast with us. It was, a, it was great having him on for a little longer than a minute. Yeah, and thanks to... Everybody involved in Warmed and Bound, the people that we interviewed, people that um, were interested, but unfortunately we didn't have the time to get on, and uh, everybody else, Pela Via, obviously, for making the Warmed and Bound sessions so great. Big thanks to Bob Pastorella and everybody else who tirelessly promoted <laughs> promoted our episodes once they went out. Thanks to Gordon Highland who gave us the intro and outro music that you heard, which originally came on the Warmed and Bound trailer. And uh, yeah, everybody just has done a great job of gathering around these Warmed and Bound sessions and making them a lot of fun for us. So thanks to everybody involved with Warmed and Bound. All right. Looking forward to our next episode. We're going to be back to a real standard format book review for the first time in weeks. Um, it's going to be The Last Werewolf by Glenn Duncan. So you'll be able to find that here in about a week. That will wrap it up for this <laughs> wrap-up episode of Booked. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snudden. Keep reading. <laughs>